just want to be able to communicate with you. It also gives you the opportunity to uh, write your questions if you have any of those on there as well. Okay. So we are today going to be in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9 is the section we're going to read. I'm just going to read it to, to us up front, and then we're going to talk about it. So it says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on your door frames of your houses and on your gates. Okay, so we spent the entire summer and actually the latter part of the spring covering the topic of prayer. If you've been here, you know this, right? You're not surprised by this. You're probably a little bit tired of hearing about prayer. Maybe, maybe not. I've loved it. But the primary reason why we spent so much time and so much energy with our gatherings around the topic of prayer is because we want to be a church. We want to be a church, a group of Jesus followers that believe in the power of prayer. So a few weeks ago, I used the analogy of form and fire to describe a vibrant prayer rhythm. It's important to understand how the Bible uses prayer to shape our rhythms and to shape our habits around prayer. We ask questions. When do we pray? How often should we pray? Why do we pray? How should we pray? And all of these address the idea of spiritual formation through prayer. That's what, I talk, that's what I'm talking about, form. That's what I mean, spiritual formation through prayer. And so the Israelites, they would pray the Shema, the section of scripture that we just read. They would pray every morning. They would pray every evening. And it was a personal reminder to them, a call to action for them to love God. It was a reminder of their devotion. And through that, through that habit of practicing prayer, of reciting this prayer morning and evening every day, they were practicing good form. Now, does that mean that they had these life-altering prayer moments that many of us have experienced every single time they prayed it? Well, maybe, sort of, and let me tell you what I mean by that. They probably did not experience, I'm just guessing, but they probably did not experience miraculous transformation in every situation they prayed for every time they prayed. That is just hard for me to believe. Maybe they did, I wasn't there, but they probably didn't. But their life was still changing through the habit, through the form of practicing prayer, God was shaping their life. So even if they prayed the prayer, they just said the words to quote unquote, say the words, that's still building a habit. That's still God using those moments to change their life. And I like to liken it to exercise. I mean, I know I look like I exercise a lot, but I do, I try. A single push-up is not going to rock your world. But 30 push-ups every morning and every evening, every day over the course of a month, is going to amount to a significant change. Right, so just like a single prayer may not change your life, rock your world in a way that you would expect it to, praying every morning and every evening over the course of 30 days, you're gonna see change. 
You're going to see formation. You're going to see form. And that's the Israelites recognized the value of formation through prayer. And so they had vibrant form. But they also needed fire. Great passion for prayer is rooted in the belief that prayer actually works. Right? Personally, I've been, I've been sharing this with you guys week to week, but I've been challenging myself with this question. Did you pray? This is me asking myself after I pray each morning. Did you pray like you believed your prayers would be answered? It's a tough question to ask somebody who's kind of groggy, only halfway through their coffee, <laughs> thinking about what they have to do that day, right? I mean, you've all been there. But did I actually pray like I believed my prayers would be answered? Now, are the things that I prayed for, did they all go the way that I want them to? Of course not, right? You've all been there. I'm certain that your experience is like mine. You pray for things, they don't get answered the way we think they should get answered, or maybe they feel unanswered altogether. I actually think, though, that if we were able to be honest about that fact, even with each other, that in our prayer life, we experience disappointments, that it would actually, actually be really, really good for us to share that with other Christ followers, right? Because I do pray often, but do my prayers always get answered? Or do they always go the way that I want them to go? Of course not. In the Bible, we see David labeled a man after God's own heart, actually praying in this way. He's praying with lament. He's praying with complaint. Listen to this verse, Psalm 5, verses 1 through 3. It says, listen to my words, Lord. Consider my lament. Hear my cry for help, my King and my God. For to you I pray in the morning, Lord. You hear my voice in the morning. I lay my requests before you and wait expect, expectantly. Voicing your frustrations does not offend God. It could actually encourage the person next to you. The person maybe that you're having coffee with later this week. The Christian that you've talked to about these prayers request, requested that they pray with you. And if you do so with the reverence that we see in this psalm, I think it's actually a really good opportunity to encourage the Christ follower next to you. I'll give you an example from my own life. Our church has been praying for God to give us the opportunity to purchase a building, to call home for years. Some of you are as sick of it as I am. Has it happened? Obviously not. That's why we're here. And at times it feels really frustrating, but I just cannot depart from this idea. We know that God hears our prayers. And he sees way more than we can see. And he has us right where he wants us. And so you might be experiencing a similar frustration in your life, whether it be about career or parenting or relationships or you've just been praying over and over and over for this thing and it just doesn't seem to be going the way that you want. And it's okay to voice those frustrations, but it's not okay to quit praying over those things. Just like we will not quit praying for a building, right? But we're gonna 
love and respect the fact that God has us right where he wants us. In fact, Proverbs 3, 5 through 6, this is a great verse. It's the reason why we can trust in God, why we are called to be people of faith. It says, trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him and he will make your paths straight. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. That might be hard, but okay, I can get on board with that. Lean not on my own understanding though. Yikes, God, I'm so smart. Why wouldn't I do that? In all your ways, submit to him. Really, really God, in all my ways, submit to you and he will make your path straight. Ah, there's the kicker. I really want my paths to be straight. So it says if I, I do that, if I, if I trust in the Lord with all my heart and I don't lean on my understanding all of the time but His and I submit to Him, even when it's really, really hard to submit to Him, He will make my path straight. That's what I want. I believe that's what you want as well. So these scriptures are not just pieces of good advice, but they are godly truths that we can pin our hopes to, that we can anchor ourselves to, our hopes, our dreams. So even if your prayers feel unanswered, feel, I'm gonna highlight that, or they're answered differently than you had hoped for, you can take comfort in the truth that God hears and remembers every prayer. In fact, I've quoted this verse often over the summer, Revelation 5 through 8. This is from John's vision in the book of Revelation. And this is what it says about our prayers. It says, and when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and they were holding golden bowls, probably from TJ Maxx, maybe not. <laughs> and they were full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. Did you catch that? At the end of the days, as we know them right now, as God comes to consummate creation back to himself and bring us back and restore us into our original design, they're holding these bowls. The elders are holding these bowls and they're full of what's like incense, but it's the prayers of God's people. And it says they're like incense to God, that sweet smell collected and stored where God will never lose them or forget them. So as you pray, remember this. As you pray, remember this. And even celebrate the fact that God always hears and remembers every single prayer. Even if they don't go answered, or even if they don't feel like they're being answered the way that you want them to, He hears them. He stores them. He knows them. And then we take scriptures like Romans 8.28. At the foundation of our faith, we have these reminders like this. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. That's a good thing for us, right? And then in Proverbs 16, verse 9, it says, The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. So God not only hears every prayer, but he answers them according to his will. And this is a good thing. Let me tell you, God knows way more than you do about what's best for you. 
Isn't that good news? God knows way more than you do about what's best for you. And so you can establish your plans, but the steps that you're going to take, the path that you're going to go, that's up to God. So again, I ask, are you praying like you believe in the power of prayer? Are you praying like you know the God of the universe remembers and stores every single prayer you pray? Right? Are you praying like you are talking to God who is working, as we saw in Romans 8, all things out for your good. As long as you love him and are following him, he is working out all things for your good and establishing your steps. And it's for your benefit and for his glory. Right. right? And so may we be a people. This whole sermon series, which we're wrapping up today. I know it's crazy. It's coming to an end. This whole sermon series on prayer is about form and fire. Having good practice, having good habit, knowing that not every single time you pray that God's going to open up the heavens and rain down on you every request you've ever offered to him. But it's been heard and it's been recorded and it's never been forgotten and will never be forgotten. That's the big idea behind this prayer series. And so next week we celebrate 10 years of being a local church, right? And those 10 years have been awesome. They've had a lot of funny and interesting and hard things. Part of it, all 10 years. Something to celebrate each one, something to mourn in each one. But the next 10 are gonna be more incredible. And we need to be a church that's built on the foundation of prayer. I know that God has so much more potential to unlock in each one of us here and those who are not here. But we must be a church built on the foundation of prayer. We must be. I know that God will continue to call people to himself through the people of Foundation Church, through each one of you and myself, so that they can find salvation in Jesus, so that they can be freed from sin and free from shame so that they can live out their calm, so that they can tell their testimonies of how God's transformed them and how they are living a life flourishing and thriving. But we must be a church built on the foundation of prayer. It's a non-negotiable. That's the big idea. And so today, our sermon series wraps up with a sermon titled Door Frames, Foreheads, and Hands. Right? If you caught that in the latter half of that passage, you probably thought to yourself, huh, wonder what that's about. Don't worry, we're going to talk about it. But I want to read it one more time so that we don't forget the section that we just read, the one that we've been studying for weeks now, the Shema. It says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on your door frames of your houses and on your gates. Okay, so the title of this prayer that's often um, been prayed, was prayed for thousands of years, every morning and every evening, became known as the Shema. And Shema in Hebrew literally means hear. 
That's what Shema means. So the very title of the prayer is the first word, hear. But what they're trying to communicate is the idea of listening. It means listen. Listen in a way that not only do you hear the words, but you understand them and that you put them into practice. In other words, listen carefully because the things that you're about to hear in this prayer are going to change the way you live your life. And that's exactly what it has done. In fact, the prayer has changed the daily rhythms as we've talked about week in and week out of thousands, if not tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of people over the course of thousands of years as they prayed the Shema twice a day, every day. Now, praying a prayer directly from scripture is a tool that can help a person hear the words of God and act accordingly, right? Sometimes I think we forget that the gift of prayer is not just us uttering a bunch of words and a bunch of desires, even a bunch of praise, but there's actually a gift of prayer found in scripture. All of these prayers recorded, and it's a tool that helps us understand, again, good form and good fire. So praying the Shema is not just an offering of ideas and words to God, but it's a reminder to us. It's actually a helpful tool. It helps us know how to pray, why we pray it, and what we should be praying. And so that idea led us to study the meaning of the words in the Shema, right? So over the past few weeks, we've covered kind of the big idea words, right? It says to love God with all of your heart. In Hebrew, lev, L-E-V. And it says to love the God, Lord your God with all your soul. We talked about nephesh. And then with all of your strength. So I want to briefly just revisit these so you can see how they culminate into door frames, foreheads, and hands. Okay? So left, heart, in ancient Hebrew, represented the center for all feelings and thoughts. They did not have the notion of a mind like we do today. And so when they say to love the Lord your God with all your heart, they're talking about everything you think, feel, and emote, right? That's actually what it's talking about. That's where all of those things came from in that tradition. So when the prayer calls you to love God with all of your heart, it's calling to love God with every thought that you think, with every feeling that you experience, and every emotion that comes out of you to be mindful, to be thoughtful about the way that you pray and to pray about the way that you're mindful and thoughtful. And then the second week we talked about nephesh. This is the second directive, to love the Lord your God with all your soul or all, all your nephesh. And we went on a deep dive of this concept. In fact, if you missed any of the weeks, I highly encourage you to go back online and watch them because we're not gonna do the deep dives today. But the idea behind nephesh is that your body and your spirit are the two woven together and they're inseparable from each other. They form your nephesh. And when you act in accordance with one of them, you impact the other. So if you act with your body, it impacts your spirit. When you act with your spirit, it impacts your body. And I won't go into the details, but it's important to know that they're inseparable. You can't live a, a life with just the spirit worshiping God and your body neglecting it, and vice versa. So to love the Lord your God with your nephesh means that you love God with all of your you-ness. Everything that's you, everything you see about me, right? And everything you experience about me, and same for you, I'm called to love God with all of it. 
And then last week, Pastor Jessica did a great job with strength. The Hebrew word for strength is represented in the Shema as meod. And that particular word literally means very. Now, scholars will say, they'll admit that that doesn't, strength, our English word does not capture the fullness of meod. Okay, so we had to elaborate a little bit. When God created the heavens and the earth and its creatures, he saw that they were good. But when he created humans, he said they were meod good. They were very good, right? So it actually means very, it's an adverb that's attached to something to emphasize its muchness. So to love the Lord your God with your meod means that you love the Lord your God with your muchness. And if you missed the sermon, again, go back and check it out because it's important to know that when you draw these terms together, whether it's your thoughtfulness or mindfulness or your you-ness or your muchness, when you draw them together, we get this clearer picture that we are called to love God with everything we are. Meaning it's not a, I'm going to go to church on Sunday and then I'm going to be something different Monday through Saturday. Right? Or even I'm going to be really religious about these practices, but I'm going to allow the other parts of my, my life right, to be something other than loving of God. Your thoughts, your dreams, your feelings, your actions, your body, your spirit, your sexuality, your identity, your personality, strengths, weaknesses, work, play, goals, finances, parenting rules. The list is almost inexhaustible. And I think you get the point. The Shema is a prayer calling us to love God with our completeness while we remain incomplete. And so, yeah, we're going to get it wrong plenty of times. Of course we're going to get it wrong. This actually, this is something I've said over and over, and I feel like I can't say it enough. This is not a call to be perfect. That's actually impossible for each one of us. Isn't it great to be around other people who can't be perfect? It's just like, it feels better than trying to be around people who think they're perfect, right? Let me just tell you, if you think that's you, you are not perfect, okay? Jesus, though, is perfect on our behalf. And so when you pray the Shema, it's not an invitation to perfection. That's impossible. Rather, it's an invitation from God to us into human flourishing into flourishing while we live here on earth. Eventually, our lives will change and God will restore us. But while we're here, this is an invitation into human flourishing. And again, it's for our benefit and His glory. So I would encourage you to think about the prayer this way. And I've said this every week and I'm gonna say it again. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart. And when you fail, His grace is sufficient. Love the Lord your God with all of your soul. And when you fail, not if, when you fail at that, His grace is sufficient. Love the Lord your God with all of your strength. And when you fail, His grace is sufficient. That's really good news. Okay, so that was my intro. Don't panic. It's going to be okay. So what do door frames, foreheads, and hands have to do with loving God? That's a really great question. The Shema, as we just summarized, is an invitation into this way of life that leads to human flourishing. But the prayer does not stop with these commandments. The section that we read does not stop 
with the prayer. It actually calls us into action as well. And so let's revisit those latter verses, verse by verse, and just see how they play themselves out in our lives. So verse 6, it says, These commands I give you today are to be on your hearts. These commands are to be on your hearts, which in their culture, as we just reminisced, is the center for all thought, feeling, and emotion. And so these commands are meant to be thought on. They're meant to be meditated on. They're meant to be dwelled upon. Every time you pray, every time you pray, think about these commands to love the Lord your God with your heart, with your soul, and with your mind. Use them to shape the rest of your thoughts, the rest of your feelings, and the rest of your emotions. When it says these commands that I give you today are to be on your hearts, it's a call to let that, to let your love for God shape everything else you think about, everything else you're mindful about. Then in verse 7, it says, impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. It's inviting you, commanding you to teach your children about these commandments. This is not a secret code. It's direct and simple. Teach your children about God's commands. When you're at home on a family game night, talk about these commandments. When you go for a walk or a drive on your way to school, on your way home from school, teach them these commandments. When you wake up in the morning and before you get ready for the day, teach them these commandments. And when you tuck them in at night and you pray with them and kiss them and hold them, teach them these commands. Proverbs 22, 6 says, train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Impress these ideas on your children so that it becomes part of their DNA and they will not depart from it. Lead them into godly transformation. Lead them into a life through formation that allows them to love God with their heart, with their soul, and with their strength. We are called to disciple our children through small deposits, done often over a long period of time. That's why you get 18 years, maybe more for some of you, <laughs> if you're lucky. Small deposits, done often, over a long period of time, and they will not depart from the way they should go. Pray with them twice a day. Teach them every opportunity, and the body of work will amount to significant results. Right? Okay, so those are the first two calls to action. And they were fairly easy to understand, I would think so. Even if they're hard to implement, I'm not saying they're easy to implement, but they seemed pretty straightforward and direct. But the next two, or the next few rather, need a little bit more explanation, I think, for us to understand properly. So I'm going to read verse 8 to you and 9 again. It says, Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Okay, so I'm going to actually take these in reverse order to help us see what these verses are inviting us into. So when it says to write them on your door frames of your houses and on your gates, it's is it actually calling us to write the Shema on your doorframe or on your gate? That's, that's a good question. In modern Judaism, 
They do literally write these commands on their door frames in, in the way, by the way, of a small scroll of parchment that's rolled up and kept neat in a container that's bolted shoulder height on their door frames. This small box of, of scripture um, is a physical reminder to that person every time they leave their home and re-enter it to pray. And when you think about the time period in which this was authored, these agrarian cultures like the Israelites would have lived in, they would leave their house every morning early and they would return as the sun was going away. And so they would come and go every single day, depending on the daylight. And this item called the mezuzah, that's the little box that's attached to their doorframe, would remind them to pray the Shema every morning and every evening. Now, our culture is not bound, for the most part, to these same time patterns, right? Our versions of homes even are much different than theirs. But the symbolism is still very helpful, in my opinion. You will leave your home, whatever iteration of that looks like, apartment or house, or maybe you have roommates, whatever it looks like, you will leave, and then you will return home at some point. And if your rhythm of prayer is attached to every time you walk out and walk back through the doorway of your home, of your shelter, then you will be constantly reminded to pray. Think about it. If it's right there, if it's right at your shoulder, you see it every time you walk by, you're like, ah, you should pray. That's the purpose of it. That's the symbolism. Wouldn't it be so significant and a big change to the pattern in your life? If every time you walked through your door, in or out, you took a moment and prayed. Even if it's your garage door. I know, we hardly go out our front door. But we go out our garage door all the time. Like, whatever your iteration of that is, if every time you left and returned, you prayed, you would pray. I'm just guessing. But I know I would. So that's the significance of it. That's why it says, attach it to your door frames, attach it to your gates. It's this practical call to a deep need in your life to pray more, to give that time to God. So you can decide on your preferred method. This is totally up to you. But I would encourage you to not neglect the call to pray more and more and more. It is for your benefit that God is calling you into this rhythm. He doesn't need it. He doesn't need your prayers. You need your prayers. I need my prayers. It's a beautiful invitation. So that's door frames and gates. Practical, physical reminder to be praying more and more and more. And so that leaves us with tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Okay, Pastor Rick, can you possibly expect me to bind these commandments to my forehead? No, I'm not asking you to do that, okay? <laughs> or tie them as symbols on your wrist. No, we're not going to do that. That's not the point. It actually wasn't the point for the Israelites either, although they also did these things. But in Scripture, the analogy of the forehead is used often to describe your ideology. Your forehead describes your ideology. Now, ideology defined as a set of doctrines or beliefs that are shared by members of a social group or that form the basis of a political, economic, or any other system. So these commands 
are to, are to shape the way we think about every major system in society. When it says, bind them to your foreheads, it's commanding us or inviting us into the opportunity to think about loving God through every major system and our ideology behind it. So at the foundation of your political ideology is the opportunity to love God first. At the foundation of your economic ideology is the opportunity to love God first. And at the foundation of our social and psychological ideologies is the call to love God first. At the heart of every major belief we hold is the call to love God first with all we are. That's the point of the forehead. As you think about the things, the things that you believe, your ideologies, are they shaped? Are they molded? Are they filtered by your love for God? That's why the forehead. But it does not end with our ideology. In scripture, the analogy of the hands is actually representative of the practical outworkings of that ideology, right? So our love for God is not just at the foundation of our decisions, but it's the determining factor in how we live those preferences out. When you decide how to think rightly about an issue, you then need to act accordingly, right? And at the foundation of your intentional effort, efforts to live within the godly framework of those ideologies, you have the opportunity to love God with how you act, with how you live your practical life. So your parenting strategy and how that plays itself out, right? Your career choice and the way you actually give your energy to career and work, how you use the tool of money, the way you interact with your spouse. You say to yourself, I love her. Do your actions show it? So it's essentially one of those things where it's, do your actions, you know, represent what you say you believe. That is how you do it properly. You act out, you live out your ideology and the practical outworkings is of your hands. So when it says to bind these commands, to love God with your whole being, to your foreheads and to your hands, it's saying to let it shape the way you think about every major system in society and then how you act accordingly. So it's actually very practical. Very hard, but very practical. So what are the implications for us believers today? Well, praying a prayer like the Shema is a proactive, a proactive effort to form godly ideologies and to live them out in a way that represents the love you have for God. When you pray the Shema, if you continue this habit of praying the Shema, it's an opportunity to form godly ideologies around every major system that you interact with, and then to use your life to act accordingly. And our prayers are the primary weapon that we have against giving ourselves to lesser and more incomplete ideologies. When we pray, it is war against lesser ideologies 
and destructive habits. The enemy is trying to trick you into believing that these incomplete ideologies that we so often give ourselves to. I'm preaching to myself here, by the way. You can listen to, I'm just telling myself right now that the incomplete ideologies that I give myself to and the outworkings that they demand are a lie. They are not good substitutes for God's love and our call to love Him with our whole heart, with our whole soul, and with all of our strength. And so I remind you again of this John 10.10 verse because I just believe it's so important for us to understand how real this is. It says the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. And I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. There's a real enemy who really hates you, who really hates your family, your marriage, and it's actively trying to destroy those things. And one of the primary ways that it fleshes itself out is through bad ideology and then the outworkings that are born out of those bad ideologies. So our fight is not with ourselves, although sometimes it feels like it. Our fight's not even with other people, right? The people over there, they say this, they believe that. That's a lie. Our fight is with the enemy, with the devil, and our weapon is prayer. We stand no chance at winning this battle if we are not going to be a praying people. That's why we must be a church built on the foundation of prayer. That's why the last four months have been dedicated to trying to convince myself and the rest of us that the power of prayer is an essential part of the life of this church. So while we might be wrapping up this series on prayer, we are not wrapping up on prayer. We're just beginning, right? I'm inviting you to be more prayerful, to nail that prayer to your doorframe every time you leave, every time you come home, every time you see your kids, every time you see your grandkids, when you meet with your friends, when you go to work, when you think about your ideologies, and when you live out the life that it demands of you, be a people of prayer. That's what we're talking about. Be a people of prayer. So will you stand with me? I thought it would be appropriate if we only spent a few minutes actually praying, not just talking about prayer. And then we're going to sing a couple songs, and then we're going to go back to our Labor Day plans. And they're going to be awesome. So don't miss this opportunity that God's inviting you into to pray. And to pray specifically that we might be the people who try, even though we fail, to try to love God with our entire being. To help Him help us, or to ask Him to help us, rather, to love Him with more of us. Just a little bit more each and every day. So I'm going to pray, and I'm going to give you 30 seconds or so to just... Also pray, and then the band's going to lead us through a couple songs, but don't let this be the place that that stops. Continue praying. So God, we, we love you and we thank you, and we are so thankful for an ancient prayer like this, one that has been prayed for thousands of years, that today is demanding of us the opportunity 
and the call to love you. To love you with our thoughts and with our bodies. With our muchness, with our personalities, with everything that you've given us and wired us to be. We get the opportunity to live that out in a way that brings you. And you're so gracious to us to give us the opportunity through that to flourish. So God, I pray that we would flourish. I pray that careers and parenting habits and strategies and prayer lives and scripture readings and and dinners with friends and family and, and interactions at work, everything that we are and everything that we do, God, would show a little bit more of your love. And that we would feel that. That we would really feel that. That we would really believe in the power of prayer. That there would be testimonies in this church of your goodness, of your power, of your influence in situations that have no other explanation. That person who would never give their life to Jesus, standing here praising Jesus. because of what you're doing through us. So God, I invite that. I ask that we would pray and pray and pray to see your will done, your goodness, your majesty, glorified here and in the places that we go. In Jesus' name.